Up to this point in the book of Ezra, we have seen how God is rebuilding his people for and around the right and deserved worship of him in their capital city, Jerusalem. As he's bringing them out of exile in Babylon and in the kingdom of Persia, back to their capital city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to be rebuilt as a people around the worship that happens there. We have seen these several things as we've worked our way through Ezra so far. We began by seeing that it is God himself who decrees from heaven that his people should return. And it is God who stirs the heart of Cyrus and works in the heart of Darius, the Persian kings. And we'll see even again today in Ezra 7, in the heart of the king Artaxerxes, allowing his people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. We saw in Ezra chapter 3 that it was for the right, for the proper worship of God, for which he sent them back to their capital city. He sent them back to rebuild the temple, to worship him in truth and in righteousness according to how he commanded that he ought to be worshipped. We saw that through uh, Ezra chapter 4 and the, the adversity that comes from the surrounding peoples that God continues to encourage his people, even through opposition and challenges from outside. We saw in Ezra 5 and 6 last week that ultimately God's mission of rebuilding his people around worship is successful as the temple is completed. But what is worship? Even, even the rightly ordered worship of God. What is worship if it does not affect the daily living of God's people? What good is a temple if the relationship with God that is displayed inside of it never spills out into the camp? What good are songs sung and sermons preached if those voices go mute and those ears go deaf upon crossing the threshold of the church house door? When God rebuilds his people... Through the events recorded in Ezra, he does so not only for formal temple worship, which is vertical in nature, not just for worship that takes place when the people gather, but he also rebuilds them for informal daily worship, which is evidenced in the relational, interpersonal, moral aspects of the people's day-to-day living. God's people are built for worship, not just vertically in formalized ways, but also horizontally as we live out the implications of what it means to know God. You would think if the point of Ezra, if the climax of Ezra, or the, the history that's told there is the rebuilding of the temple, you would think that we had reached that, that climax point, that pinnacle in the narrative rather early. There are four chapters left, seven, eight, nine, and 10 in Ezra, uh, which there is much more that will happen. I would argue that Ezra is split in half on purpose, that the first half of Ezra 1 through 6, the rebuilding of the temple, which is completed at the end of 6, and then Ezra 7 through 10 being a second half, are organized uh, around, these theme, around the same theme of worship. But chapters 1 through 6 about the vertical worship that people have with God formally, and chapters 7 through 10 about the horizontal implications of a life of worship and what that means for the community of the people of Israel. In Ezra chapter 7, we'll be introduced finally to the title character of this book, to Ezra. Up to this point, he has not been mentioned, and we will meet him in person in chapter 7. 
And Ezra will serve as a leader among God's people in Jerusalem to restore not the vertical formal worship of God in the temple, that's already taken place, but to restore a life of worship that takes place horizontally among the people of Israel as they live as God's people there. We'll find in chapter 7 the Lord sovereignly providing for Ezra's return to Jerusalem from Babylon to teach the Israelites the law of God. We'll find today that the servant that God uses to shape his people, to shape his people around the the right kind of horizontal worship, the, the servant that God uses to shape his people is competent, is certain or convictional, and that he is full of character. Let's introduce ourselves to this servant. Would you stand with me as we read? Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll skip to verses 27 and 28. We'll, we'll look at the other verses in the middle as we move along. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, picks up 57 years after the end of chapter 6. So Jeshua and Zerubbabel, those godly leaders who led the people to rebuild the temple, are dead, and the scene shifts from Jerusalem back to Babylon. Now after this we read, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the hand, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Move with me to verse 27 of the same chapter, where now we hear from Ezra in his own voice, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. May God edify us through his word as we study it. You may be seated. The servant that God uses to shape his people for living out the implications of their right worship of the only true God is a servant who is competent, who is convictional, and who is full of character. Let us look at these aspects of Ezra. Let's look first at Ezra's competence. Ezra's competence. We see in verses 1 through 5 
that Ezra is ultimately a son of Aaron. He is qualified to serve as a priest. We read there 16 different names, different names that represent generations that preceded Ezra, going all the way back to who? Aaron, the brother of Moses, the chief priest of chief priests, the first high priest that ever was in the people of Israel. Ezra comes from the right pedigree, if you will, in terms of ministry. He, as, as one of a son of Aaron, is able to serve as a chief priest. Now, he himself does not serve as a chief priest, but he could if the need arose or if he was so selected. Ezra is a son of Aaron. His own name, Ezra, is actually short for Azariah, meaning God has helped. That will become rather a poignant point, I think, for us as we move along, significant point as we move along in Ezra, as Ezra becomes a servant who helps God's people to become what they ought to be. Ezra comes from the right line. He's a helper of God sent in the line of Aaron. We see also his competence evidenced in the fact that he is a scribe of the law, as verse 6 says. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. What does it mean to be a scribe? Well, it meant, first of all, that Ezra was literate, that he could read and write. Uh, living now in the western part of the world where literacy literacy rates are really rather high on a global scale, it, it is odd to us, it is out of the norm for us to meet, some, meet somebody who, who cannot read. But in Ezra's day, it was quite the opposite. It was rather uncommon to meet somebody who could read and who could not only read but could also write. As a scribe, Ezra was literate. He could, he could read and write, but he, as a scribe, he was also a copyist. That is, it was part of his job to take the scrolls or the, the, the gathered writings of the law of the Lord that had been passed down through the generations and make new copies of them. This is painstaking work, copying uh, God's word, line, word by word, line by line, book by book, that there might be more copies of it. But more than just being literate and a copyist of God's word, as a scribe, he was skilled, he was taught, he had a a deft ability to interpret and to teach the law of God. Now, the law of God, that phrase refers to uh, generally the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly called in Hebrew Torah, meaning instruction or the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Ezra would have known these words by heart. He would have understood them fully, and he would have been educated and taught, made capable to not just to read the law and understand it, but also to teach it to other people. Ezra is competent as a scribe. But we see also in verse 6 that Ezra was a servant to the king. So he's a son of Aaron, he's a skilled scribe, and he's a servant in King Artaxerxes' Court. We said earlier that this, the reason we know that this takes place, Ezra chapter 7, verse 1, some 57 years after the end of chapter 6, is because of the reference to Artaxerxes the king and when he ruled over Persia. Verse 6 says that Ezra made requests of the king. It says, The king granted to Ezra all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Very likely, Ezra's role in the Persian kingdom was as a a Jewish advisor of sorts to King Artaxerxes. He was an expert in uh, what the Jews believed and how they lived. And it was his role in Artaxerxes' court to tell Artaxerxes about 
the Jews and what they did and the kind of people that they were. So here's a man in a position of great influence with the king, maybe even great influence over the king, looked upon with, uh, with maybe some clout by the people who has some serious personal skills that he has devoted much of his life to honing and to growing for service to God. And he's a son of Aaron. He's a chief priest. He's got the lineage. The servant that God uses is a man of competence, and we see that in Ezra. But we see, secondly, that the servant that God uses is not just one of competence, but also one of conviction. Look, at, look with me at Ezra's conviction, his certainty, his strongly held commitments. Verses 9 and 10 read this. For on the first day of the first month, Ezra began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra, here's his conviction, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. Ezra's conviction is this. The word of God, the law of the Lord is necessary for shaping the people of God. Put slightly differently, the people of God cannot live as the people of God if they do not know his word and are not shaped by it. Ezra himself devotes his heart to study the law of the Lord, he tells us. Literally, we could say he appointed his heart. He he set apart his entire being, his whole life, to search out the law of the Lord, to inquire of it, to understand it, to make application of it to his own life, to understand all that God meant when he gave his law to his people through Moses. But he's not devoted just to studying God's word. He's also devoted to what? To doing it. That means to to observe it, to obey it, much like we see from the brother of Jesus, James, in his letter that we looked at towards the end of last year. James instructs the church, exhorts the church not to be hearers of the word only, but doers of it also, to have a faith that works, not just to believe things about God, but but to believe God in such a way that it changes the way that you live. So also is true of Ezra. He doesn't just want to know what God's word says. He wants to do what it commands. But see Ezra's conviction even further. He's not committed only to study the law of the Lord. He's not committed just to do it, but also he wants to go a step further and to teach it and to teach it, to teach the rules and the judgments of God in his law. In this way, Ezra personifies the spirit that really all of Israel was to have that we read from the mouth of Moses by the inspiration of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 25. Listen as I read. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What did Ezra determine or what did he uh, 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 set to do? He set his heart to study the law of the Lord. The words that I command, uh, Moses says, shall be on your heart and you shall teach them. 
diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The kind of people that God intends to be his people. At the end of Deuteronomy, as the Israelites are about to go into the promised land of Canaan, would be a people who are shaped by, marked by, formed by his word. This is the kind of man that Ezra is determined to be. Moses continues in Deuteronomy 6 verse 20. He says, when your son asks you in the time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that our Lord God has commanded you? What is it that Ezra wants to teach the people? The Lord's statutes and his rules. Moses continues, then you shall say to your son when he says, what's the point of all this law? You're to say, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. What is it that Ezra is convicted to do? To do, to obey the law of God. Verse 25 of Deuteronomy 6, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Ezra's conviction is not anything different than what God has intended for his people to be convicted about as his people from the beginning to know his word, to do his word, and to teach his word to others. Ezra's conviction personifies the kind of conviction that God intended for all of his people. But as a servant of the Lord, Ezra is competent. He is convictional. He is certain about what it is that is necessary for shaping the people, and that is the word of God. But Ezra is also a man full of character. We see this in verses 25 through 28 of Ezra chapter 7. In verse 25, we pick up at the tail end of another letter from another Persian king in the book of Ezra. We've gotten letters from Cyrus, we've gotten letters from Darius, and now we've got a letter from Artaxerxes. And in the letter that Artaxerxes gives to Ezra, beginning in verse 11 and continuing through verse 26, Artaxerxes essentially says to Ezra, yes, you may go back to Jerusalem, and I'm commanding, I give a decree that you are to teach the people the, the law of the Lord that you have studied and committed yourself to teach and to do. And I'm going to give you lots of resources. You're going to be in charge of the people people that go back. I'm going to give you a lot of money that you can use at your own disposal to finance the work that needs to be done there. And he says this in verse 25, Artaxerxes writes, "...in you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, that is, everything east, or excuse me, everything west of the river Euphrates, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them..." You shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. And then we hear Ezra's words where now the narrative shifts to the first person view and we see the rest of Ezra through his own eyes. 
where he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. What sort of character does Ezra have? Well, first of all, he's confident confident in God to approach Artaxerxes, the king. We know from the uh, biblical book of Esther, Esther chapter 4, verse 11, Esther's that story of uh, the Jewish woman, the Hebrew woman, Esther, who was living in the Persian kingdom and who was called by the Persian king who preceded Artaxerxes, the king Xerxes, who made Esther his queen. And Esther goes to the king in Esther chapter 4 to make a request of the king that he would protect her people, the Hebrews, from malicious plots that were against them. We learn from Esther that to simply call upon the king to make a request of the Persian king without being expressly called by him and given permission to speak was punishable by death. So here you have Ezra, a servant in the court of Artaxerxes, who is bold enough, who is confident enough to go before the king to make a request on behalf of his people. There's no reason to believe that Ezra broke convention with, that, with this Persian rule, but still, it takes courage, it takes confidence in something or someone outside of yourself, beyond yourself, to make such a bold request of such a powerful figure. Even if God had so led and called Ezra, it still takes courage and confidence in who God is and what he's called, him, called Ezra to do, to go in front of the most powerful world at the time, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and say, here's what I need from you. Ezra's a man of confidence, confidence in the Lord. But Ezra is also a trustworthy man. We see this in verses 25 and 26 and in what proceeds in Artaxerxes' letter. Because in the space of the letter that Artaxerxes gives to Ezra, probably as a copy of the letter that Ezra could keep with him, uh, carry with him to, to show to everybody, yes, I do have permission to do these things. In that letter, Ezra is entrusted with what would uh, amount to about 25% of the annual taxation revenue of the province to which he is going. Uh, the king, Artaxerxes, gives him 100 talents of silver. That's about 7,500 pounds of silver to use for his disposal, along with much wheat and wine and oil and salt for whatever needs to happen in the temple. He's giving this all into the care, into the stewardship of Ezra. He also gives him the permission to use that money to purchase animals, gives him other resources as well, not to mention the many people who return with Ezra. Priests and Levites, singers, gatekeepers. Sounds a lot like the, the same kind of return that we read of in Ezra chapter 2, the kinds of people that are going back. All of these entrusted to Ezra's leadership. So he's not just confident, but he's also trustworthy, and his trustworthiness is seen by King Artaxerxes. These are two great characters and the kind of servant that God will use. But there is a third characteristic that I think is more important, and it is this. It is not Ezra's confidence, it is not his trustworthiness, but it is his humility that stands above all. His humility to recognize the sovereign hand of the Lord, the sovereign hand of God that is moving in every instance of what is happening in his own life and the life of his people, Israel. In verses 6, well, in verse 6 we read this. At the end, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. In verse 9 we read, 
that they began to go up on the first day of the first month. They got there on the fifth day, the first day of the fifth month. It's a four-month journey because the good hand of his God was on him, was on Ezra. And we read in verses, uh, well, in verse, uh, verses 27 and 28, Ezra saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put this thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, and who extended me his steadfast love before the king, his steadfast love which is sung about by the people of Israel in Ezra chapter 3 as the foundations of the temple are relayed and the people sing, uh, uh, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love, his steadfast love endures forever toward his people. Ezra says, I took courage because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Who is the God that Ezra trusts? Who is the God that Ezra is humble enough to recognize his sovereign moving in the woods? The one true God of Israel. The only true God. The only God who commands kings and directs the hearts of counselors. The only God who stirs in the hearts of powerful men and in the hearts of his people to do his will for his purposes. Ezra is a man of competence. He's a man of conviction. He's a man with confidence and trustworthiness. But most of all, he's a man who knows who's really in charge of everything. It's the Lord. The Lord whose good hand is on him, whose good hand is on his people. The Lord who is superintending all of these events for his glory and for the good of his people as they return to Jerusalem to worship him. The servant that God uses is competent. He is convictional, and he is full of character. There's a problem for us when we read Ezra this way. These things are true, but it poses a problem for us as Christians today because seen from a human perspective, Ezra, this servant of God, like Moses, like David, like Elijah, like Elisha, Ezra is an impossible character for us to imitate. We read all these things about Ezra, his competence, his conviction, his character, and we think, I'm not competent enough. I'm not an expert in the law. I I don't have a place of power and influence in the world. I'm not convictional enough. I I don't know if I believe as strongly or have as great a faith as Ezra had in the Lord. I don't have the kind of character that Ezra has. I'm not that confident. I I've made some stupid mistakes in my work life. I've I've lost trust with people. I'm really not very humble. The problem for the Christian is that seen from a human perspective, Ezra becomes a kind of person that we cannot imitate. But here's the hope for the Christian, dear friend. Ezra is a man like any of us, called by God, equipped by God for God's purpose. Dear Christian, you too have been called by God when you trusted Christ as Lord. When you placed your life into His hands, repenting of your sin, believing in His death for your sins and in His resurrection for your new life, when you gave your life to Christ as Lord, you were called by God to His purposes in service to His kingdom. And this is true. God will equip you for service to his kingdom. He will equip you for the calling which he has given. And all of this, God equips you not through your own competence, not through your own conviction, not through your own character, but through that of Christ. The hope for the Christian in light of the kind of person that Ezra is and the servant that God uses is this. Christ is all of this for me. 
Christ is my competence. Christ is the source of my conviction. Christ is, is the character, is the one who is full of the character of God who gave his life that I may follow after him. Listen, Ezra was a high priest in a line of high priests, an expert in the law, a scribe of the law, one who sought to keep and to do it and to teach it in his own life. But you are not Ezra. I am not Ezra. But there is one greater who has fulfilled this role of Ezra for us, and that is Christ. Christ, who is not just any high priest, but who is our great high priest. Christ, who who not just lived a, a, a good life, but lived an impeccable life without sin. Christ, who was a fulfiller of the law in which Ezra was an expert, but still fell short of. Understand this this morning, dear friends. You may not be a high priest. You may not come from a pastoral pedigree. Right? Your father and your grandfather and your, and your great-grandfather may not have been pastors or preachers or deacons. Your mother or your grandmother, your great-grandmother may not have been missionaries. You may not come from the line of Lottie Moon or Annie Armstrong. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't make you any more or any less useful, any more or any less competent to serve as a servant of God's kingdom. Because you do not need to be your own priest. You do not need to fulfill the law of God for yourself. Christ is your high priest who has fulfilled the law for you. So Christian, understand this. Christ is your competence. Christ is your competence. He is your letter of recommendation to the Father. He is the one that makes you able. He is the one that gives you whatever pedigree it is that you need to serve in the kingdom of God. In Christ, we don't trace our family lineage. We don't trace our ancestry through human people back to God. We trace our ancestry, our spiritual ancestry, straight to Jesus who died for us and rose from the dead, who sends his own Holy Spirit to dwell in us when we give our lives and faith to him. Jesus, who is not just the son of Joseph, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of David, the son of Adam, the son of God, but just Jesus, who is straight the son of God. He is your competence. Hear what Paul says to the preacher, Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, were once disobedient, Led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated, hating one another. Sound like you today? Sounds a lot like me. But listen to how Paul continues. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us from our foolishness, our disobedience, our, our being led astray. He saved us from our slavery to passions and pleasures. He saved us from passing our days in malice and envy. He, he saved us from the hate that we have for one another. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, Paul says. Not because of our competence, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, that means being born again by spirit and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, so that being justified, being made right with God by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does that mean? That means we inherit with Jesus, the Son of God, all the things that God has given to him. Eternal life, access to the Father, a a life forever, now and, and in the age to come, even after death, in the very presence of God, being right 
with him, having nothing standing in our way. Dear friend, Christ is your competence. Do you think I'm not good enough? I'm not talented enough? I'm not skilled enough to serve in the kingdom? Get rid of that garbage thinking and understand what Scripture says is true. You don't have to prove yourself to God. There's nothing you have to do to show yourself worthy of being used by God in his kingdom because Christ has already done all of that. And you, by faith in Jesus, are united to him. And all that is his is yours. And yours in spades, Christ, is your confidence. Christ is a great high priest who fulfills the law. He's our, he is what makes us competent. But Christ is also the word of God made flesh to whom all the scriptures point. What was the source of Ezra's confidence? It's in the law of the Lord. He believed the word of God was the, most, the, the only necessary and most important thing for shaping the life of his people. Certainly we have the word of God today sitting in our laps, these small libraries, God's written word to us, and it is necessary for shaping our lives. But we don't read these words, study these words, endeavor to do them and to teach them to others simply in order that we might prove ourselves more moral, more acceptable to God. We don't study his word and do his word and teach it to others to check lists of meritorious action to be in a right relationship with God. We read these words and study them and teach them to others to point them to Jesus, who is the very word of God, who took on flesh and to whom all of these scriptures point. Dear friend, understand, Jesus is the center of God's word. He is the theological center of it all. Everything is either pointing forward to him, preparing us for him. In this way, Ezra is kind of a a shadow, a a road sign, a prefiguring of what the Christ would be, of what Jesus would be. And everything after uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection is pointing back to him to see that all we have and all we need, all that is ours is ours in him, the necessity of knowing Christ as Lord. It was Ezra's conviction that the word of the Lord, the law of God, was necessary to shape the people of God. So you too, Christian, who have come to know Jesus, who is the word of God in flesh, be certain of the power of God's word. Be certain of the power of God's word to transform his people, to transform you. And being certain of the power of God's word, commit to studying it like Ezra. Commit to doing it, obeying it, like Ezra, like James encourages the church to do, not being hearers only, but doers of it. Commit yourselves to teaching it. Oh, you say, pastor, I'm not a teacher. I could never teach the Bible. It's just too complicated. It's too hard for me. Christian, do you believe that God has called every one of us who are followers of Jesus to fulfill the great commission in the world, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The call to be a teacher of God's word is not just for pastors and preachers and those who serve as Sunday school or small group Bible study teachers. The call to teach the word of God is a call that every Christian carries. Because the Great Commission doesn't apply just to pastors or preachers or Sunday school teachers. The Great Commission applies to every Christian. 
So you, dear friend, have been called to teach the Word of God. The Word of God, which is powerful, to transform the hearts of those who don't know Christ yet, and the Word of God, which points us to the incarnate Word of God, who who changes the life of the Christian. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in confidence about what the Word of God does. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Listen, Christian. He says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is nothing that cuts to the quick of your heart that gets to the meat of the matter of your obedience to Jesus like this Word. No pastor, no preacher, no Sunday school teacher can teach this word, can, can, can do anything with this to add any power to it. It on its own is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Christian, unsheath the sword and let it do its work. Amen. Listen to what Paul says about the word in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Familiar verses to you, I'm sure. Paul says, young pastor Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It's, it's breathed out by Him. And profitable. That means helpful, fruitful, beneficial for these things. Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If the Word of God was good enough for Ezra to shape the people of God, to live lives of worship, to God, then, dear friend, it is more than enough for us today. You who fear you do not have what it takes to help another follower of Jesus become more mature, to grow in their obedience and followership of Jesus. You who say, I can't disciple someone else. I don't have what it takes. Dear friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, who himself inspired these words, and you have a copy of this word, you have all that you need to help someone grow in faith. You have all that you need to be a teacher of the word. If only you'll commit to studying it and to doing it, to living it out, putting it into practice in your own life and to teaching others. The great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the church is always to be under the word. She must be. We must keep her there. You must not assume that because the church started correctly that she'll continue to do so. Don't assume that. She didn't assume so in the New Testament times, and she has not assumed that we would just carry on without this, without the Word of God since. Without being constantly reformed by the Word, the church becomes something very different than what God has intended her to be. We need the Word of God. We need it to shape our lives. We need it to shape our mission as a church, which is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Word of God to be that which drives us to to come to to know God as Lord, to know Christ as Lord through His Word. We need His Word to help us help one another to grow in maturity and obedience to God through it. We need His Word to be the powerful Word that we proclaim as we share the gospel with others. Like Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the content of this Word, because it is the power for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Christian, do you believe it? Are you confident in this? Is Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, that which the written Word of God points us constantly to, is He the source of your conviction that this, that this is what we need to shape our lives, to shape our church, to shape our homes, 
to shape our work relationships, to shape our marriages. Be confident in that. Be convinced that it is true. Be convinced of its power. Because Christ, the incarnate word, is the one that every written word points us to. You say, okay, pastor, I follow you. Christ is my competence. He proves my, he, he, he is my, my boldness. He is my means to the throne of the Father. I get that. My life is his. His word shapes my life and has power to shape others around me. I get that. But I don't have the, not display the kind of character in my life that God can use. I've made mistakes. I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I've been proud. I can't be the kind of servant that God would use the way he used Ezra. Know this, dear friend, that just as Christ is a great high priest and the fulfiller of the law in your place, because Christ is your confidence, and just as as Jesus is the incarnate word of God to whom every written word points to, in whom we can have, in which we can have confidence to be shaped and to be changed by, know this too, that Christ is also the personification of godly character that God uses in his servant, and who he intends to transform our character into conformity with by being renewed in Christ. You say, I don't have the kind of character that Ezra had. Dear friend, trust Jesus, trust Christ, who fulfilled every aspect of the character that God intends to use in his servant and transform your character. Have your character, your heart, your desires transformed by being renewed, not in patterns of better behavior, by being renewed, not in new habits that I start this week, but transform your character by being renewed in Jesus Christ, in Christ himself. In Philippians 2, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, like Ezra was humble, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How do I become humble? How do I do things in life for the benefit of others? How do I become the kind of servant that God will use? By receiving that character, by receiving that mindset, by receiving that heart through Jesus Christ, who, Paul says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on for his own benefit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Jesus that you have your character transformed by. The servant that God uses to shape his people is competent, he's convictional, and he's full of character. And the servant that God uses in Ezra 7 is just a small taste, just a small foreshadowing, just a a road sign on the way to the servant of God who is our competence, who is the source of our conviction, and who is the one who shapes our character as we trust in him. Don't be like Ezra. Trust Jesus. Don't make your life about 
emulating or imitating this priest who had a conviction about the the word and who was humble before the Lord. Make your life about emulating, about imitating the true servant of God that he is getting us ready to meet. Dear Christian, you can serve God because Christ is your competence. You can serve God in the conviction that Jesus, the incarnate word to whom every word of this book points, has power to save and transform and change lives. You can serve God with a character that looks like that of his perfect son, Jesus, as you simply give your life over to him. You may be hearing me say this morning that Jesus is everything we need to be a servant of God. And you're right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Christian, you don't need better programs. You don't need a more charismatic pastor or preacher or Sunday school teacher. You don't need to prove yourself or your reputation in the eyes of men. You don't need those things to serve God faithfully and powerfully. What you need is Jesus. What you need is Christ who gave his sinless life on a cross to pay for your sins and who was raised in victory to live in glorified body forever that we by faith in him would have our sins forgiven, be right with God. Look forward to abundant life in his Holy Spirit that is given to us now and eternal life in his presence when we die. We don't need a better church structure. We don't need a better ecclesiastical, a new ecclesiastical reformation. What we need are hearts that are oriented around Christ. Amen. Friend, if you don't know this Jesus today, if you don't feel competent, you have no conviction, you don't have the kind of character that you feel you need to have to make yourself worthy, to be accepted by God, know this, Jesus fulfills all those things in your place. And all of them are yours if you'll simply turn from your sin and from self and give your life to him in faith. Yeah. The servant God uses to shape his people is Jesus, who is our competence, who is the source of our conviction, and whose character is given to us as we trust him by faith.